Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we are joined by Tennis Channel contributor, former Grand Slam champion, and critically acclaimed coach Paul Anacone to discuss the 2022 SoCal Pro Circuit. For those of you who haven't been following along, our Crack Rackets team so fortunate to be able to bring these series of six ITF Pro Circuit events happening in the Southern California area to all of you tennis fans. We have semifinal coverage every Saturday, championship Sunday coverage as well. This SoCal Pro Circuit offering professional playing opportunities to the countless aspiring juniors, talented collegiate athletes, and pro players beginning their careers in the Southern California area. The quality of tennis has been exceptional. I mean, we saw NCAA singles finalist August Holmgren capture his first Pro Circuit title. We saw Duarte Vaz former Florida All-American, capture his first singles title, 2021 NCAA doubles champ. McKenna Jones capture her first professional singles and doubles titles, and that's through just three weeks of action. We still have three more weeks to go. Coverage going to resume next Saturday and Sunday. Again, you'll be able to follow all of that SoCal Pro Circuit action on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Sincerely, folks, the quality of tennis is extraordinary. So many of the matches beginning after play will have already ended at next weekend's Wimbledon event. So folks, you're missing out if you're not tuning in. Really should join us. And on today's podcast, Coach Anacone discusses the importance of the SoCal Pro Circuit, the importance of providing these playing opportunities to the countless players in the SoCal area, why it's important not only for these players, but for American tennis more broadly, why a healthy American tennis ecosystem has to include more events like the SoCal Pro Circuit. Of course, I wanted to ask him about his own playing experience, trying to break through the rankings, how different things were when he played compared to how they are now. Wanted to talk about his own college tennis experience. Had to pick his brain about a few Wimbledon thoughts at the end as well. It is a fantastic podcast conversation that we know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, before we get to that podcast, I want to remind all of you that this Cracked Interview show is made possible because of the support we get from our friends at Swing Vision. We talk about the importance of the SoCal Pro Circuit, the importance of the work being done by Swing Vision. It's going to impact the next generation of tennis players. Simply put, their artificial intelligence technologies on the forefront of all innovations happening within the sport. Not only will they be able to provide automated line calling at local events, ITF future events in the very near future, but of course, their app can help you break down and improve in the most efficient way possible. When you download the Swing Vision app, all you got to do every time you play, open up the app, hit record on your phone. Swing Vision is going to do the rest. They're going to record your hitting session. They're going to break it down for you, show you the mix, show you the misses, show you the things you can get better at all in the palm of your hand. Again, you can learn more about the Swing Vision app by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast. You use our promo code CRACK20. You'll get $20 off plus a 14-day free pro trial. Again, we would not endorse a product so thoroughly if we didn't so thoroughly believe it. Swing Vision's on the forefront of artificial intelligence technology innovations in the sport. Get yourself on the team today by downloading that Swing Vision app. With all of that said, let's get to it. Fantastic podcast conversation with the one and only Paul Anico. 
joining us on the podcast today to help talk about the 2022 SoCal Pro Circuit is a man all of you tennis fans will be familiar with. Of course, he was one half of the 1985 winning Australian Open men's doubles pairing in ITA College Hall of Famer and, of course, a tennis channel contributor extraordinaire. Welcome onto the podcast, Paul Anacone. Coach, how are you doing today? Good, Alex. Thanks for having me. Always fun to talk tennis. And uh, as we said before we started, you and I get the benefit of uh, not having real jobs. We get to talk about tennis. So that's pretty good. Yeah, no, it could be much worse. It was funny. I was home doing a broadcast one day and it was eight hours of the SoCal Pro Circuit. And I walked upstairs and my dad goes, you talked that entire time. And I was like, I told you it's a real job. And he was actually impressed. And so sometimes it's a real job. But yes, it's a very fun job for us to get the chance to focus on. And obviously, I don't need to list your credentials. But for those who don't know, you were a former outstanding player before turning into the outstanding coach we all know you as now. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show today is to talk about the SoCal Pro Circuit, the series of six ITF events on the men's and women's side being offered in the Southern California area. Now, simply put, and this is a topic we have discussed on these podcasts before, those playing opportunities, few and far between here in the United States. Unfortunately, we've seen fewer and fewer entry-level professional events like these ITF 15Ks are that offer those opportunities to players to begin their pro careers and begin to build up their ranking resume. You know, where I want to start today's conversation is actually with your own experience, because as I mentioned, you were an All-American and top collegiate player back at the University of Tennessee, you know, playing from 1982 to 84, uh, which is one of my favorite eras of college tennis. We can maybe get to that at the end of this show. But, you know, the reason I bring this up is I'm aware of the satellite tour that existed in those days. And I'm curious for our listeners who may not know them, if you could expand on what that satellite tour was and if that was something you utilized early in your career. Yeah, it was a little different back in the uh, dinosaur eras, as you mentioned. <laughs> you know, we used to have to play um, a, a circuit. You know, you'd have to play three tournaments and then the best, the players that do the best play the masters, um, play the last event. And that's how you find out what your total ATP um, ranking point accumulation is going to be. And, and so, you know, we used to go, I went to the Canadian circuit uh, in the summer, one summer and, and finished, I think, third or fourth. Um, so that's what players used to have to do. So they, they used to make these lengthy trips to wherever they were. Uh, we had a bunch of them in the States, which were terrific as well. But you were committing to, you know, say four weeks, four and a half weeks. So now to have the opportunity to have these one week um, transition tour events, ITF events, the challenger events as well, it's, it's a huge benefit, number one, for cost, cost, cost effectiveness, for the, uh, effectiveness for the player, and also just for the opportunity for the players to get to play because they want to play a bunch of matches. So historically, as you mentioned, we've seen a deterioration um, of the number of those opportunities in the US in particular. And that's been a struggle. I mean, that's hard for the U.S. players because, you know, you're finding and hearing about a lot, a lot of these young players that are flying to Tunisia and to all different parts of the world to try to scrape together opportunities to get these ranking points because we don't have that many events here um, in the transition tour level in the state. So when um, 
when Chris Boyer and Trevor Cronin and, and Bob Hoxfeather and these guys came together and said, you know, what can we do to try to figure this out? They put together a really great kind of blueprint to figure out how to get a few more events and uh, went out into the community and got some very generous folks who are uh, tennis lovers to participate. And now we have the six ITF events, which is a great start. It's not the do all or end all, but it's a great start. This is a terrific opportunity. Um, and we, we need more of that. We need more of that in particular for the players in the US and, and here at home in Southern Cal. I mean, let's think about Southern Cal historically has been really kind of the Mecca of uh, tennis in the US. I mean, Southern Cal's had the strongest competitive level section in terms of players for so many years. And there's, how do you beat it with the weather and the amount of facilities and the amount of great coaches um, out here? So it just seems like a natural fit. Um, and Trevor uh, and Chris and the team around really did a nice job going out and just preaching the gospel about how important it is. Um, and so now the ball's rolling. Hopefully that little snowball turns into an avalanche and we continue to build on it. Absolutely. Some numbers Chris Boyer was kind enough to send along between May and September of 2021. There were nine men's ITF pro circuit events during that same time in Europe. There were 102. And that doesn't include Tunisia, Turkey, Egypt, where there's almost a pro circuit event a week. It's just unacceptable. And while it does feel, perhaps on the men's side in particular, we are in the midst of a bit of a resurgence. You see this young generation of players, Fritz through Tiafo, all the way through to the Korda Brooksby Nakashima generation. How valuable are these playing opportunities? Not necessarily the ATP, you know, tour level event wildcard discussion, which we can get into separately, but just for a 17 year old, 18 year old, or even that 20, 21 year old who's in college, but not sure if they want to try out the pros, you know, why is it important to have these opportunities available to them? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the questions that's always really debatable with a lot of people, but you know, if you look at the countries that have done so well lately, you look at Italy and you look at how many events they've had and how many players they've had that have gone up through the ranks. I, I don't think that that's uh, an anomaly. I don't think that that's not uh, correlated because, look, we all know superstars are cut from a different thread, right? We all know the greatest of the greats do things a little differently, but you need opportunities and you need pathways. And, and the most proven pathway in recent times has been opportunity to play these transition level events. So when you see the players like a Jensen Brooksby or you see a Taylor Fritz or Brendan Nakashima or Seb Korda, these guys coming up, they really need opportunities to play here, number one, financially. So it's not so expensive for everyone to fly all over the world to play. Number two, it's much more easier to kind of put things together in terms of training, practice and growth, as well as competition if you're close to home. So when you combine those two areas, it's a great recipe. And, you know, you throw in the college pathway as well. You know, this opportunity is something that uh, really grants a lot of college players opportunities, times uh, to play here in the States around their college schedule which will give them some ranking points and professional exposure. And I think it really is, I think it's absolutely invaluable. Um, you can quantitatively debate how valuable, but for me, as you look at progressions of players coming up, 
uh, I think it's really important to have as many homegrown opportunities as you can. And here in Southern Cal, I mean, this is just the seedling. So we're hoping it's watered and it grows and grows because we want there to be a lot of opportunities and we want there to be um, kind of a simplistic pathway to give our players um, the best chance to reach their potential. Well, I'm, I'm very happy you bring up the collegiate pathway because again, talking about your own history, you come out of college, one of the top players in the nation. Shout out to you, by the way. I'm sure Kelly Jones was coming for your throne in 84 and you're like, no, 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 Kelly. It's still my year to shine. Um, But looking at the matches and the tournaments you were able to play to build up your ranking. And, you know, pretty quickly you were able to get into the top 100, top 50. I look at the schedule and, you know, I see places like Atlanta in April, Las Vegas and Chicago. I have to imagine Stratton Mountain is in the United States. I could have looked it up further, but I'm just going to assume I'm right in that one. You were Yeah, I appreciate it. You were able to play a primarily U.S.-based schedule to get to the top 100. That's just impossible now, isn't it? it? It is, unless you have a huge splash at a tour level. And that's, you know, that's for, to me, those are the anomalies. Those are for the best of the best. And there's nothing wrong with going through different pathways. John Isner went to university, right? Last time I checked, he was went to a university. And last time I checked, he was ranked in the top 20 of the world for 10 years in a row. So there's a way to do it. And whether it's a college pathway or it's a pathway of combining collegiate growth experience in terms of matches, development, training, all that stuff, and having opportunities both at the challenger level and at the ITF uh, uh, futures level, when you can put those two together close to home, it really gives a lot of players a nice foothold and inevitably a springboard to get to the next level. But now we don't have enough of that. So it's really a challenge for players to do it. And the only way they can do it really is if they happen to have one of those weeks where it's a hot week at a tour level event, they play great and get to the semifinals and pick up a boatload of points. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen very much. True or false, Kevin Curran bailed out of your Atlanta semifinal because he knew he wasn't going to beat you three times in a row. Uh, that's got to be true. Yeah, <laughs> complete. That's what the facts say. You know, that's what the fact sheet suggests. So uh, well, you, I don't, would, you don't want to let facts get in the way of good stories. Yeah. Those. Gotta be, gotta you be know, careful about how you do it. I'm going to cut that clip, play that for my dad. So he gets hey. that message because I tell him that all of the time. Right. But, you know, again, ATP level playing opportunities is a separate discussion, but you talk about the difficulty of breaking into that top 150, top 100 level where you can start playing those level events very frequently. Just look at this grass court season, Tim Van Reithoven or Antoine Bellier this week. You have the Jack Drapers, Ryan Penistons of the world and Ryan, the particularly pertinent example. I feel as though now more than ever, if I'm an 18 year old kid, Unless I'm top 150 in the world, why not go play two years of college tennis? Why not go have someone pay for my training as I physically develop? Is that a line of thinking that appeals to you? I would hope so. I mean, I, I you're preaching to the converted. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I just don't see the downside of going to a good university with a great program, a great college coach, great facilities and getting, oh, oh yeah, and also getting an education. So, you know, there you can reap the benefits of going to a university and getting um, tremendous, tremendous experiences and not in isolation. There's plenty of time where you can find opportunities to go play other tour events 
to try to get some ranking points and to get some experience, which then circles back to our initial conversation of, but we don't have enough tournaments here in the States. So, you know, if we do that, if we use that pathway, it's even really more important to continue on this growth pattern that the SCTA has kind of initiated of, come on team, let's get together as a tennis family, a tennis community, and figure out ways to help our players stay home, improve, and really give themselves a chance to kind of reach the big leagues. Mm -hmm. And maybe listeners will believe you more than they'll believe me, but I can say these numbers till I'm blue in the face. There are 10 players in the ATP top 100 who play in singles who played college tennis. There are 32 players in the top 100 of the doubles rankings who played college tennis. You look at the first three weeks of the SoCal pro circuit. We had players on the men's side, like an August Holmgren who just made an NCAA singles final Duarte Valle, all American Ethan Quinn, redshirt freshman at Georgia. You know, they all won pro circuit titles. I mentioned Kelly Jones, his daughter, McKenna Jones wins her first pro circuit title. You had a snow Han, a redshirt freshman winning a title as well the quality of tennis my pitch because obviously our crack racket team fortunate enough to be able to broadcast all of this action uh saturdays and sundays over the next three weeks we'll have it for you the quality of tennis is spectacular that would be my pitch to anyone in the socal area right go support these local events prove that they should be in these communities right and it'll be worth your while a hundred percent. I mean, look, you just mentioned the, the Jack Drapers and the Penistons and the folks like that, that no one knows who they are. And look what they're doing at tour level events. Yeah. You know, we, it seems like we throw out cliches, a tennis channel, when we talk about narrow margins, it's not a cliche. I mean, it's a fact. And, and the idea that a lot of these young players can now um, play closer to home, uh, to hone their skills and to give themselves an opportunity to build up a foundation of ranking points and experiences so they can go to the next level a little bit more seamlessly is totally logical. Now, the problem is it takes, it takes resources, it takes time, it takes facilities, it takes money, and it takes the manpower to do it. And, and I think we have all those things, um, but we have to make sure that we do it the right way so that it is in, indeed a true pathway uh, of progression. And I think we're on a really good path right now here in Southern Cal. Um, and I hope it continues to grow. Do you forecast there will be, and we saw the ATP event in San Diego last fall. They have a WTA event coming this fall. Obviously, the John Isner Open, a.k.a. Atlanta, is a staple on the tennis schedule. And, you know, we see Dallas having an ATP event now as well. I think they're going to have a WTA next season. Do you foresee a rise in American in American-based tour-level events coming? Is that something American tennis needs to get back perhaps to where it once was? I think it would help. You know, look, yeah. it, it always helps to have more events at the tour level in your home country. Um, I think historically in the last few decades, it's been very difficult for a lot of the middle rung events to be able to economically survive, to figure out how to do that. Um, I think Atlanta's done a nice job there. Terrific that Dallas is back on. They've got good sponsorship team uh, to do things there as well. Um, I was fortunate enough to spend a bunch of days down in Barnes last year at the ATP event in San Diego and uh, Ryan Redondo and his team, Danny Valverde and everybody did an amazing job. And I, I just left there going, gosh, we should have an event here all the time. So it's great that the WTA has an event there this year. So you can do it. It just, you have to figure out how to make it work economically and in the strong tennis communities, it can work. Um, 
So I did a lot of tap dancing, but I'm, I, I hope it's a resurgence. Um, but, you know, time will tell because, look, we all know the numbers and 2020 during the pandemic time, tennis increased. Tennis is getting better. Let's hope that, you know, it's one thing to put rackets in hands. It's another thing to keep them in hand. So I think there's no better way to do that than to have examples of tour level events where people can watch uh, in tennis communities and also watch on TV. Well, people at home can know light on his feet, Paul Anacone with that tap dancing. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. But, you know, here's a silly question for you because we talk about growing the game. Does tennis need to embrace pickleball? Like, is that, it, it seems like it's so uncouth to even suggest that in the open. I mean, I, uh, one of <laughs> I recently, or not that recently anymore, but moved from where I grew up to Indianapolis. And before I had left, I had just broken into a pickleball circle of like adults who were playing. And they're like, you used to play tennis. You must be good at this. I was in case you were curious. Um, <laughs> and I, I like, I do think there's a natural feed in where, you know, again, someone playing pickleball as an adult may get their kid into tennis or someone playing pickleball may find an affinity for another racket sport. I think the two should embrace one another. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a challenge, right? I mean, you know, one sport competes with another sport, whether it's pickleball and tennis or basketball and football, you know, there's a competition, but the fact that it's rackets and hands, it's, a, you know, it's a racket sport um, and that it is kind of booming here in the U.S., there's got to be a way to integrate a little bit um, promotionally and marketing wise so that, you know, maybe there could be a little bit of a catalyst Um but I don't know. I mean, that's not my feel. I don't know how I don't know how you do it, but you would think there should be a way to do it. Um, but just by virtue of the excitement, figure out how to do, you know, some kind of tennis pickleball festival where you yeah. have both things going on during a weekend and, and you create opportunities for players to come compete and learn in both areas. But um, there's a lot more smart, smarter marketing people than me around that I'm sure could figure it out. Well, I know David Roditi, head coach for the TCU men's tennis team, he will host pickleball events at TCU, and then we have the match right afterwards, so people stick around. It's just, you know, again, at an ITF event, yeah, you have to coordinate a million things, but have the adult pickleball clinic in the morning. Then they'll stick around to watch some exceptional tennis. I do feel there's cross-promotional things that can be done, to your point, because it's all on the same racket. With that in mind, you know, again, uh, to talk about some big picture things as we look at trying to grow the sport at the grassroots, what would be the one thing you would encourage a parent to say, you know, if they want to get their kid involved in the sport, they want to get them hooked. What's the best way to go about doing that? Well, this is, therein lies the problem. That's the $69,000 question, right? It's what do you do? Because I think tennis is a little bit more complicated to not only access, but to also stay involved. And, and to me, that's why it's so important, I think sectionally in the United States to have the right people in each section running the grassroots opportunities and the developmental stuff so that local families can reach out to them very simplistically and understand how to get rackets in their kids' hands and where they go very simply to go down through a progression. So to me, I would put the onus on on sectional development in the 17 sections of the US. I think that that would be a great way to do it because I think that that just in terms of simplicity would help people. Because look, tennis, unfortunately us tennis family members 
have seen for so many years, tennis is a very splintered sport and industry. So many governing bodies, so many different ways to do things. I, I, I don't think most people look at tennis and go, oh, this is easy. How do I just do this? And, and most families don't have a ton of time to figure it out. So kids are playing baseball in school and football and basketball in school and volleyball and everything else. So it makes it much easier to get into those sports. So I would like to see the impetus on the sections to get some help so that they can create nice pathways to get rackets and hands for kids. Mm -hmm. Did you know you were going to play college tennis during as you were growing up? Was that something you aspired to do? How did that decision come about? I did because I wasn't that good. I mean, I was a pretty good national player, but I was never, I never played a, a, a junior slam event. I never played a major junior event. So, you know, I think I was top 10 in the country um, a few times in juniors, but I was never the elite of the elite. And I, I needed that college um, kind of maturation process and developmental process. And I had a great coach, uh, Mike DePalmer Sr. at the University of Tennessee, who was incredible. I mean, I would have never made it in pro tennis if he wasn't there to help me. And so I went there after spending time at Nick Boletari's Academy in between Nick and coach De Palmer, And then my brother at the reins as my coach, I had three amazing people that helped me go from one level to the next, but I, I never would have made it without college tennis. And, and to me, you know, the three of my, the best years of my life were there too. Have you seen coach Woodruff coach Tennessee? I have. Yeah. I is have there, seen. it is immensely entertaining. Talk about, yeah. I mean, that is an experience. What is the best that he's, you know, he's exactly what you need in college tennis. He's passionate. He loves the game. He is a, a stalwart in the Knoxville community played there um, and, and was a star. So I, I think it's a great fit. And, and uh, I think they're lucky to have him. I checked his pedometer post-match, 50,000 steps. It's impressive. The, the man gets after it. Uh, but, you know, again, with all of that in mind, obviously this SoCal Pro Circuit, you know, I know this is a broad question, but why was it important for you to get involved? Why did you feel as though this was something you wanted well, to be a part of? Well, I've been, you know, I've been lucky. I've been a tennis lifer. You know, I've been able to do stuff in tennis my whole life that I love. And, and my parents told me when I was a kid, if you love what you do, it's not really work. And, and I kind of agree with that. And so a couple of, you know, last year I started getting involved with SoCal and helping, you know, throughout the year with some player development stuff um, with Scott Lipsky and with Trevor and the team. Uh, um, and this year, you know, we're trying to do some more things with uh, Diane, Matthias and, and Scott and Trevor. Um, and it's growing. And I love being out in the courts and seeing these kids. And so when you see the kids and you see what they're trying to do and you see all the efforts of the SoCal team really trying to give kids opportunities and realistic pathways, it makes a ton of sense to then watch the progression and then go, oh, wait, there's a huge gap here on the transition tour. And when I first was fortunate enough to talk to Chris Boyer and Trevor um, and Bob Hochstetter about that, um, they just were really, really passionate about plugging that gap, about making an opportunity here in Southern Cal. And like I said, from the beginning, I grew up back in the dinosaur ages and Southern Cal was the Mecca of tennis. Mm -hmm. This was the section where everyone could play all year. There's no wind, there's no humidity. There's a million great facilities. There's a ton of people with great knowledge, great coaching. So to me, it, it should be the model for everybody else. 
what's the SoCal Mount Rushmore? Sampras is on it, right? That's one of the faces. Do you throw Tracy on there? You probably have to. You get to have as many people. I put as many people as you want. I put well, you count Venus and Serena. Of right? course. Yeah. And, I would say they're the obvious corner faces. And, and Pete and Lindsay and Tracy. So those are five right yeah. there. Can I put, can we put on like, we could go down the list. There's probably got to be 10 or 20. We could throw. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, Stevie Johnson isn't on the Mount Rushmore, but he's the number one docent where he's like, hey, this is my little section. And like, they let me in. I'm a member here on in this best, club. Best player in the history of college tennis, uh, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And so again, deserves, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a rich history uh, to your point. And obviously, again, I think for tennis players everywhere, to if you've tuned into any of the SoCal Pro Circuit, it's not just the SoCal kids. It's all these players who accumulated a few points and then went back to college and are now trying to dip their toes back in. Again, it's exactly the sort of opportunities that you've alluded to now being provided. Uh, with all that said, I'm going to sneak in two minutes of Wimbledon questions, if that's all right, before I let you okay. go. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned, again, working in the SoCal area, getting to work with the UST, I want to focus on the Americans here. Now, certainly it feels like there are a lot more bites at the apple on the American men's side in particular. You know, as you look at the American men entering this 2022 Wimbledon, we're feeling pretty good, right? The American men have taken a step forward this season. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I think one of the biggest things, one of my biggest themes about player development is, um, trying to fill all the different layers, right? And and one of the things that we've seen in the last five years is when you have groups of young, really talented players, they push each other. And, and now we're getting kind of a little bit of a, of a cross era um, reference, right? We have Stevie and Sam and John Isner getting a little older and now Taylor and Francis and, and that group with Riley um, and Tommy Paul in there as well. And then you know, you go down to Jensen Brooksby and then you go to Brandon Nakashima, right? And then you go to Seb. So you have kind of three different age groups that are pushing each other. And so when you look at that group um, and you look at the talent level, I'll be shocked if one of the Americans doesn't have a real big Wimbledon. Um, I won't be shocked if two or three have a real good Wimbledon. Um, And and I think all of these players um, are... Are, are really feeling more comfortable. The problem is with grass is the season's so short. So even though the game that everyone plays today transmits better to different surfaces, you don't get a ton of time on the grass to get really acclimated. But all of these players can play on grass and it's been fun to watch. It's been fun to be fortunate enough to spend some time with Taylor and help him. Um, David Nankin did an amazing job with Taylor for five years with the USTA. And now they've had him kind of move over to some of the younger players. So Michael Russell's kind of at the helm with Taylor. So I've, I've gotten to watch two great coaches and help those guys kind of develop and grow Taylor. Um, and, and to see a bunch of really young, great players at Carson. Um, so I, I think that that treadmill's going. You know, the thing is, how do we keep it going? How do we get that group of the next, young? you know, that's the idea is to keep it going and to get more. But I won't be shocked, Alex, if we see two, two or three of these guys get into the second week. Won't surprise me at all. And I think one of them could be a guy like Max Pressey, who, you know, again, another guy who I I didn't even mention Max. And he's in, you know, he's in the finals of Eastbourne this week. 
Yeah, just uh, you know, six six shouldn't be able to move that well. It's an alien, and then it, An- another just... co- another college pathway, right? There you go. Didn't play as a freshman, was outstanding as a senior, and yeah, now top seventy five in the world. Three Bruins, top seventy five in the world. They had a team. This is one of my pet peeves. Listeners will know. Twenty fourteen, Mackey played three. Garone played two. It was college tennis number one, Clay Thompson, who played one singles on that team, lost NCAA semifinals. I'll never understand how, but that's a discussion. Yeah, discussion that's for a different team. time. Good squad. Yeah, a very good team. Um, you talked about the Masters 1000. I know this is a bit off topic. Should there be a 1000 on grass? I'd love, I'd love for them to be one. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a, now there's three weeks between Roland Garros at Wimbledon, so it would have to be you know, kind of the second week. You don't want to have it the week right before Wimbledon. I, I would love to see it myself. One of the majors is I'm a big believer in the, both of the tours modeling their periodized year as the around the majors. That's what I think. You lead up into the, the majors. So if you think of it that way, it makes a ton of sense to have one on grass um, a couple of weeks before Wimbledon. Yeah, I I. Again, the U.S. Open is never going to give up Labor Day weekend, right? Not ever. And so you either debate pushing back Wimbledon a week and maybe because to your point, you can't do it the week after the French Open because then the people in the finals of the French Open are like, no, we're not going to play. You can't do it the week before Wimbledon because you just can't do it the week before a slam. Um, Although... I kind of like the Western and Southern Open, U.S. Open 2020 COVID stretch. Like, I didn't hate that. So, you know what? I, I yeah, sit, yeah, but yeah, you didn't hate it, Alex, because we were so starved for getting yeah. any. We were sick of doing stuff like this, sitting in our office. Yeah, yeah very, very fair. Uh, that's true. And so it would be interesting. You can't do it after Wimbledon is the problem. No, so It only makes sense if you do it before Wimbledon. And I think maybe you're right. If you can find a way to get the powers that be to stretch out one more week, give it four, you know, give it four week grass court season uh, leading into Wimbledon. That'd be amazing. Yeah. And so it, it should be fun. All right. The number, uh, last one in terms of the Wimbledon side on the women's, you know, Iga's won 35 matches in a row that said seven and five in her career on grass courts. Now she made the round of 16 last year and some will point to her junior Wimbledon singles title, which whatever that take that as you will. Is she the unequivocal favorite entering the women's field? In my book, she is. I mean, she hasn't lost since, you know, 2008 now, I believe. I mean, yeah. she's won so many matches in a row. It's unbelievable. And, you know, whenever you're that confident, it's always difficult to bet against somebody. And I think in the majors, um, because the draw is a little bit bigger, she has a little more time to figure it out. Granted, she's most vulnerable the first couple rounds when the grass is green and slick. And that's when she's going to be most vulnerable. But if she gets her teeth in the draw, I'd be tough to bet against her. Yeah, I'm breaking serve 56% of the time this season. That's just well, last that, that, That'll do it. That, yeah. that'll, her, that'll last, her last loss, Kevin Curran, 85 quarterfinals Atlanta. Just so you know, what, yeah. yeah, yeah, last loss for Iga, just in <laughs> case you weren't sure. But again, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today, Paul. And, you know, as we've alluded to, SoCal Pro Circuit, three weeks left to go in the LA area. We'll have coverage of Championship Saturday and Sunday for you here on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. I assume you will be on Tennis Channel over the course of the next two weeks celebrating all yeah, things Wimbledon. Be, uh, I'll be on Tennis Channel covering Wimbledon. I'm hoping to get down uh, to the Kramer Club next week and watch some of the tennis. So it all depends on how generous my bosses are at Tennis Channel with the <laughs> scheduling. 
if they're generous, I'll be down there. Uh, well, hopefully we will see you there. And of course, always a pleasure to get the chance to chat with you. Be safe, be healthy, and hopefully we'll get the chance to ta- chat more soon. Much appreciated, Alex. Thanks. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Anacone. A massive thank you to Coach for taking the time to chat with us today. Hopefully, we will have him back on the podcast to talk all things tennis in the near future. Again, if you are looking to follow the SoCal Pro Circuit, you are now intrigued. Don't worry. We've got coverage coming back for all of you listeners starting next weekend. We'll have three weeks of action, Saturdays and Sundays, as we watch so many of the aspiring and rising young talents compete in the Southern California area, of course. We also know Wimbledon right around the corner. We'll have coverage of the year's third Grand Slam for you each and every day on our mini break podcast feed. We've previewed the event over on our Great Shot podcast feed. If you're looking for all of that content, head on over to our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all this content possible. Shout out to our friends at Swing Vision as well. Remember, you can learn more about the app by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast. When you do download it, make sure to use that promo code CRACK20 to let them know we sent you there as well. With all of that said, for the fantastic Paul Anacone, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Swing Vision, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.